Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, your host of the Living Undeterred podcast. I am super excited to announce our guest today. I've been wanting to meet this gentleman for quite a while. We've been bumping each other on social media, but never had an opportunity to actually meet face to face. And even though this isn't, you know, metaphorically we're face to face, uh, someday I will meet you. Um, and I'll talk to you about a project I'm working on that will involve me meeting you face to face. So um, I haven't announced it yet. <laughs> That's a tease. <laughs> um, so um, Matt Newman, uh, Matthew Newman is our guest. He's the host of Starting at the Finish Line, which I thought was one of the most unique uh, titles for a book. Um, and I'm super excited to read it. Uh, My Cancer Partner, Perspective and Preparation. And the last word I think is the key. You know, we have obstacles thrown at us all the time. And uh, for me, um, my purpose became my passion when it got personal. On October 4th, 2016, it got personal for me. I got the call that our oldest son, Seth, was found in a hotel room, needle in his arm, bed neatly made, sitting in his chair, age 23, dead from a heroin overdose. And I made a decision, Matt, on that day that it took time, and I'm going to talk about that today, and I, want, I know yours did too, um, how I became a better man, not a bitter man. And I share that through the Living Undeterred Mindset Project that I've embarked on just since January so your story is heroic, it's awesome, it's inspirational, and I want to first just introduce you, Matt, Matt Newman, and you're currently in, you live in Pennsylvania, correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, how about a little, back, a little background about you, about why, yeah. you think I, why you think I drug you on my show? <laughs> I don't think you drug anything. I think we, we learn the greatest lessons in life at the deepest and darkest of times. And I don't mean to, to, to gloss over that for a lot of the, the journeys that a lot of us have been thrust into. We didn't ask for it. Right. We didn't say we want to have these challenges, these life-altering events that, that can really impact our hearts. But that's life. Mm -hmm. And what we realize is that it's a lot more fragile than we ever anticipated. And we often get these lessons at young ages, but unfortunately they don't bloom till, till much later on. Mm -hmm. And when I was growing up, I grew up right outside of New York City in Northern New Jersey. My father was a financial advisor. My mother was a school teacher who taught something called ESL, which is English as a second language. They would always give me this advice and this guidance and you know, you're a young kid, like, oh, whatever, I don't wanna hear about it. But what they were doing is they were planting seeds inside of me that would later bloom that I wouldn't understand until that happened. So the year was 1996. I just graduated from the University of Delaware. We like to call it the ass kicking chicken down there, not the fighting blue <laughs> And I graduate and I'm standing on the football field in this beautiful blue cap and gown. And Maya Angelou is giving her amazing commencement speech. And my mom and dad come walking down and my dad gives me that little fist sign. My dad's from the Bronx. I'll clean his language up. And he goes, nice job, buddy. I'm like, dad, king has arrived, man. He goes, uh, sure. what, what do you want to do now? But that's easy, Dad. I want to be a financial advisor. I want to join your practice. And my father looked me dead in the eyes. And he said, there's no bleeping chance that that's going to happen. And I was angry. And I was upset. There we go. And I was angry. And I was pissed. And I was, I was all annoyed. But he was giving me one of the greatest lessons in life. There's no free lunches. You go out and earn it. Go get licensed. Figure it out on your own. If it becomes your passion, your craft, your career. We'll talk in a few years. So as we were kind of talking about before we went on air, the financial advising community is a lot broader than most people realize. There's so many different levels of it that compact, that allow advisors to be able to have the proper information that they can do what's in the best interest of a client. 
So in the late 90s, 1996, 97, mm -hmm. I became what's called a wholesaler. A wholesaler is someone who works for a company that manufactures a 401k, right. a mutual right. fund, an annuity. I can go right down the list. And they'll go meet mm -hmm. with financial advisors, as you know well, and try to show you why you should right. use that in your plan for certain clients, whatnot. The reason that I did that was because it allowed me to go yeah. get licensed, just like everybody else, get right. all different initials after my name. But it gave me that opportunity to do that, to learn the business and see if it was a craft of mine. And I remember right before I started, my dad sat down with me. And he said, there's three things I want to go over with you. I said, yeah. He goes, one, if you don't believe in the product or a family member doesn't own mm. it, you don't sell it. Yeah. You lose the battle to win the war. Right. It's about the client's best interest. I said, yeah, dad. He said, number two, always be honest. Eventually, if you're not, it's going to come full circle. You're not going to be able to put your head on a pillow and sleep at night and you'll lose trust from people. Always be honest whether it's good or bad. I said, yeah. He said, number three, you got a soccer scholarship to college. Take that work ethic and incorporate it into this and there's no limits on what you can do. And I started my career. And I said the same thing every day. The job of the financial right. advisor is to be there when things are bad, to have a plan in place prior to the negative, to give people good news when they truly need some semblance of hope. It's not about the investment. Anybody could do that. It's about having some planning in place that alleviates regret, resentment, and negativity and allows people to take on the battle at hand. And I would say it every day. And I would talk about it. And it became a passion. And in 2001, I became the top guy at my company. And I was working, working for one of the largest companies in our industry. And in 2003, I became the number one person in our industry. And I remember my dad sitting down with me. And he goes... <laughs> Not bad, kid. I'm like, yeah, well, not bad, right? Doing okay, dad. And he goes, uh, I think we need to talk about you joining my firm. I said, you can't afford me any longer, dad. That's not going to happen. I like it. I found a craft. I found a passion from a different perspective. But everything we, pra we preached, mm -hmm. we practiced. And over time, in 2004, I was the happiest guy in the world. I'm living in old city Philadelphia, this beautiful ambiance of – Young professionals, people in medical school, law school. It was cobblestone streets, Betsy Rawson at the flag. It, it, it was an infectious place to mm -hmm. be. I grew up outside New York City. I'm a diehard Yankees fan, Giants fan, Knicks fan. That doesn't <laughs> go over well in Philly. But I fell in love with Philly the day that I moved there. I loved it and never left. That's awesome. And I met all my friends and my career is booming. And of course, what happened to me is what nobody plans to happen. Then I met the girl yeah, of my exactly. dreams when I wasn't looking in any way whatsoever. And I was completely happy being single. Three weeks earlier, I told my mom, I'm going to never get married. I'm living the life of Brian. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, bam, everything changes. And Always, always. It's always that way. And yeah. we, got, we got married in 2006. Okay. My wife grew up in a very different environment than I did. I'm a Jewish guy. I grew up in northern Jersey. Mom, I said, was a teacher, dad, a financial advisor. My wife grew up in mining country, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, mining country is not what it used to be. All the mines shut down and you have no employment. You have opioid problems. Oh, There's yeah. gang issues there. Yeah. These beautiful towns that revolved around football stadiums yeah. for high schools yeah. are a shell of what they used to be. My father-in-law was a construction worker, highway construction worker. My mother-in-law was a janitor. 
My wife grew up in a 600 square foot row home. Wow. I went to college on a soccer scholarship and enjoyed the hell out of it. Right. My wife worked full time at a state school temple because that's the only way she could pay for it. Sure. And we, we grew up in these different environments. And I heard all this negativity about in-laws and the way they take control. My father-in-law liked to hunt, he liked to fish, he liked to fix things and grow vegetables. I did none of that. <laughs> but we both liked to drink beer and we liked to you know, watch baseball games together. And I was convinced I was going to turn him from a Phillies fan into a Yankees fan. Good luck with that. And they're that. some of the most wonderful people. Yeah, right. Some of the most wonderful people. I did get him to go to Yankee <laughs> Stadium with me a bunch of times. They were some of the most wonderful people I ever met, and I was blessed to have them. We might have grown up in different areas, but that meant nothing. It was right. about the person inside of you. It was about the realness and the purity that comes along with it. And business kept booming. About nine months after our wedding, we were expecting our firstborn. I will let everybody watching do the math on that one. Yeah, absolutely. And that July, my first child was going to be born that September. I remember my dad sitting down with me, and I love that coffee cup you have right there. Yeah, it's uh, my, my favorite movie. <laughs> uh, we love that one. So I yeah. remember my father sitting down with me going, about to have kids. I'm like, yeah, dad, family's growing, everything, right? Moving out to the suburbs, the whole gig, right? He says, what do you say every day? Our job is to be there when things are bad. Our job is to have a plan in place prior to the negative. Our job is to avoid regret and resentment, allow people to take on the battle at hand. Right. He goes, yeah. What do you talk about planning? I go, nobody plans to fail. They fail to have a plan. You put a plan in place to, as you take on more obligations, as you have more responsibility. He goes, do you practice everything you preach? I go, of course. He goes, so did you do your will? Oh, that. I didn't get to it yet. Yeah. <laughs> be born in September. Did you do your yeah. power of attorney yet? Yeah. No, dad. I, you know, Later. Did you do all your life insurance planning? Dad. Yeah. Just did the Broad Street run in the Tough Mudder. And he goes, so you don't do everything you say. And I nod in my head like this. And over the next two weeks, I did it all. For all watching this, there's this mistaken perspective because of the vernacular we use in different fields. Doctors speak a vernacular that the average person doesn't understand. Financial sure. advisors speak a vernacular. Yeah. We have to start communicating with people in a regular fashion. And one of the biggest issues we see in this country is that the US education system does nothing to educate people on the basics of employee benefits and money. They don't need mm -hmm. to teach you how to pick mutual funds or how, that's why you hire amazing advisors. But right. what you do is, if you don't learn how to do things, you make mistakes. And if something bad happens, it boils up to regret, resentment. I woulda, shoulda, coulda. And that's yeah. something we have to take some serious change with in our education system as we're preparing people for the real world. No, well, we're you know too, for the real world. You know too, Matt, in our industry that there's a big shift towards the behavioral finance, behavioral economic no side of it. Because the reality is if cognitive biases get in the way of your portfolio that you pick, and let's say it's low expenses and everything fits the parameters that everyone said you could buy, yet you don't understand the concept of loss aversion. And the first time you get your statement, it goes down and all of a sudden everything goes out the window. And that is probably where um, I wish when I came in the business in 1989, that I would have understood that that is where we need to be as financial advisors, not pickers exactly of portfolios. Right. Yeah. And so I think um, and you, you know, you come in from the wholesaler perspective. Some of my best friends today uh, are wholesalers in the business, and I've got to know them on a personal level, like like I'm getting to know you. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things out there that I think um, the education system is poor at, and one of them, obviously, is dealing with adversity, trauma, expectations. 
Um, and that's, that's my focus that I want to um, spend the rest of my life is talking to kids pre-habituation. So before things become a habit. And so they are aware that, that there are certain things that are impending, that things are coming like death and, um, and people saying things about you and things that could, you know, make you choose a road of bitter, not better. And so for you, you were on top of the world. It sounds like you were like me at age 50. I was on top of the world. I had it all. Uh, and then I get the call. My son is dead. Um, you were 39 when, when you found out something that changed your trajectory. Um, do you mind sharing that uh, yeah. and maybe a, l- a little bit about how you found out and what happened right after that? Yeah. So when I started to do all that planning, as I was just mentioning a moment earlier, you uh, the reason I want to share that is there's this feeling that it has to do with wealth. You can go on legal Zoom for $19 to do your will. Sure. Your power of attorney. If Tony Soprano and Aretha Franklin would have signed three documents, they would have saved $60 million. It's not about your wealth. It's about basic things that we're unfortunately not educated in and we learn about after the fact. So I did all that stuff. I had my first child. 16 months later, I had my second child. When my wife was pregnant with our third child, if I looked at her, she became pregnant. If when we were (laughs) pregnant, my father-in-law at 60 was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I I read that. My first experience with cancer happened when I was 15 years old. My first personal experience. My grandma, Grandma Harriet, was diagnosed with cancer. I wasn't old enough to understand it or digest it or or get the realness of it. But what I remember was one day she was Grandma Harriet. The next day she was wearing a cancer turban. And the next day she was gone. What really resonates with me is what it did to my mother. My mother mm. talked to my grandmother every single day on the phone. Every weekend, they were at our house in Parsippany, New Jersey. We're at their house in Fairlawn, New Jersey. And I watched my mom become a different person. And she cried sure. nonstop. She was never the same again. And it built up this hatred, this anger that I had for cancer. I wish I could have been there more for my mom. I didn't get it. I was 15. Yeah, sure. My wife and my father-in-law were two peas in a pod and very similar. And I immediately learned what real strength is. We had two children under three years old. We had a pregnant wife. Mm-hmm. Her father-in-law, her father's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And yeah. every day she drove him down for his Whipple procedure to the University of Pennsylvania. 35 minutes, no traffic, an hour with traffic. And every day she would take care of the children. She would take care of me. She would drive him back and forth to chemo. She never bitched. She never complained. She did what family does. Family is there to support each other, do whatever we need to do at the most disdaining of times that we have to, that we have to take on. And my father-in-law, Larry, I remember him sitting down with me one day. And he said he had three goals, two goals, excuse me. One was to see all three of his grandkids born. The second was for them all to be old enough to have real-life memories of him. He was a warrior. It was an honor to be his son-in-law. And what most people don't truly understand is when you get pancreatic cancer, the average shelf life is about six months. You don't feel it until it spreads everywhere. Right. And. Cancer is like a roller coaster. It goes up, down, left, right. It doesn't care about your emotion. It doesn't care about your plans. It doesn't mm-hmm. care how it's affecting your life. And his roller coaster started to move up and down. And to make a long story very short for you, I was driving on a snowy, miserable day in a town called Bridgewater, New Jersey, on a road called Route 202 in my suit and tie, the same road I've been taking every day for ages. It's snowy. It's miserable. And I'm like, not today. I'm doing 25 miles per hour. I don't feel yeah. like dealing with this. And there's fender benders all over the side of the road. Right. I pull up to a traffic light. Did you ever hear of the insurance company called Chubb Insurance? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. 
I pulled up to Chubb Way, the road that that is on. And oh, wow. as I pull up, I hit my brakes and my car hydroplanes right into the car in front of it. Hits the car, flips over, goes into the median. I'm holding on to oh, that wow. steering wheel. Steering wheel, airbag pops out. I'm thinking all that working out I do is for this moment right now. This is it. I get out of the car with a scratch on my body. Police come running over. They're like, dude, you got to get to the hospital right now. I'm like, no, man, beast mode. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine. They're like, here, it's the hospital. So I call my wife up who's shopping at a place called the King of Prussia Mall, taking a little break from Larry's chemotherapy right now as the roller coaster is heading back down. I tell her what happened. She goes, you got to go to the hospital. I'm like, I'm okay. She goes, don't forget about our friend Karen. Our friend Karen Mancini was driving in a town called Bluebell, Pennsylvania one day. She had a traffic light and a car comes flying through and T-bones her. Please come over. And they go, we, we want to take you to the hospital just to make sure you're okay. She's like, okay. Three hours later, two surgeons walk in and tell her that they wanted, that she should send flowers and a thank you note to the person that hit her. They found a brain aneurysm in her and she would have been dead four or five hours later. Yeah. I thought about my wife. I thought about my now three children. And like a type A personality, I jumped in a tow truck. We took my totaled car down home and I rented a car and went on my way. Absolutely. So that, yeah. so that night when I got home, Larry sitting on the couch, emaciated. I got three little kids running around in diapers for the most part. Sure. And my head is killing me. I mean, I'm just in my head. My wife suffers from chronic chronic migraines. So she looks at me, she goes, did you go to the hospital? I go, no, don't worry about the headaches. Try getting chronic migraines. Over the next two weeks, the pain got more and more severe every day. It wasn't about me. It was about Larry. It was about my children. It was about my wife. Yeah, absolutely. Two weeks into it, I lost all ability to sleep. Larry and I would be sitting on the couch watching a baseball, you know, trying to watch a baseball game or something. And I'd pass out and I'd wake up at 8.30. I'd wake up at 10 o'clock, couldn't go back to bed. The pain was so severe. I then started to have what I thought were strokes. I speak on the financial business everywhere, all over the place. I'm the guy who gets sent out to talk about it. Speaking something that just came naturally to me. It was just easy. I, Mm -hmm. I, something I enjoyed doing, connection, realness. And I was giving a speech and I felt a hot flash hit me in the face, just like a pregnant woman would get. And after that hot yeah. flash hit me in the face, slur and gurgle poured out. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. But I remember seeing myself standing outside my body going, you're having a stroke. You're having a stroke right now. It felt like an mm. eternity. It was five to six seconds. I kind of got myself sure. together. I'm like, oh, I don't want to have sinus infections or something. Let's bounce back into this. Over the next five weeks, I had nine more of these strokes. I had one when I was training for the Broad Street Run, the largest 10-mile run in the country in Philadelphia. I had one when I was driving, another when I was speaking. When number 10 hit me, I'm like, if this keeps going on, there's something wrong. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. Giving a speech in front of 300 LPL advisors in Parsippany, New Jersey in 2013. And as I go to make a point, I feel a hot flash hit me in the face. Wow. I know then... I could turn my back on everybody because my motor skills were fine. Point to a PowerPoint and try to kill this five to six seconds. Yeah. That was the moment I decided I'm going to the hospital right now. I Hmm. finished my presentation. About 30 hands go up. Doing a good job. 300 people there. 30 hands go up. They're ingratiated in what you're talking about. They're embracing it. They want information. You're building connection. And what everybody remembers is my head just went and dropped. I answered one question and, oh, God, I'm running late. I am so, I, I, I got I to gotta run. All these wonderful people. Hey, Maddie, come on, one more question. Let me ask you this. You know right. what's going through my head? 
if someone doesn't get away from me, someone's getting put on the ground right now. Yeah. That's not me uh, yeah. by any stretch. I have these wonderful people. Let, Matt, let me walk to your car. I have a great question I want to ask on this. I peeled out of the parking lot. That's not me. I don't do that. I called my wife up. She was at the King of Prussia Mall again. We're obviously putting their children through college there. And I told her what was going on. And we were meeting at a place called Capital Health in Hopewell, New Jersey. Maybe five minutes from my house. One of the better hospitals in New Jersey for this type of neuroscience type stuff. I had a 90-minute ride. And my head's all over. All right, they're going to give me some medicine. They're going to figure this out. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to die. We meet in the parking lot. We hold hands. And we walk in. They go, first thing we're going to do, Miss Newman, we're going to give you a CAT scan. CAT scan's easy. It's like an x-ray. No big deal. Yeah. Give me a CAT scan. And three hours later, they walk in. They go, we think we know the issue. I'm like, yes, diagnose it. Fix it. It's been enough already, man. It's been brutal. They go, you have a lesion on the left frontal lobe of your brain. Remember I referred to the vernacular before? Yeah. To lesion. me, a lesion yep. is a cut or a bruise. That's to me too. Yep. So you know what I'm thinking? Yeah. Freaking car accident. I'll bet you when that airbag popped, sure. I went like that. They go, it is causing massive pain. I'm like, you don't know the half of it. They go, that's what's causing you not to sleep. I'm like, yeah. And they go, it's a new you're not having strokes. You're having seizures on the left frontal lobe of your brain, which is causing this. As difficult as that sounds to handle, I was like, yes, that's exactly. Uh, what do we got to do? You got to get yeah. an MRI, an MRA, blah, yeah. blah. I was actually kind of happy. Like, okay, now this you, makes sense. Now you know what it is, yeah. Correct. So what happens is I'm going through all these MRIs and MRAs, and all these MRIs and MRAs. At 3 o'clock in the morning, they're like, you have to do one more. You have to do one with contrast. I've probably been in four or five times at that point, Matt. My wife says to me, she goes, I'm going to go home. I got to get a ride for my dad. Roller coaster going back down this way. And uh, I got to make lunch for our kids. At that point, we have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. I go, I'm going to be in the tube for like an hour. So the woman comes walking in with the wheelchair. All right, Mr. Newman, one last MRI, MRI. We got to do a contrast. I go, I'm not getting in the wheelchair. I just did the Broad Street run eight days ago. Yeah, I'm exactly, sick of wheelchairs. Yeah. I'll walk down there. Mr. Newman, liability. You're not allowed to walk down there. I get in the wheelchair. She's like, all right, let me get the clipboard. Let's see. Mr. Newman, MRI, MRA. We now have to do a contrast. We got to find out how big your brain tumor is. Tumor. It's a lesion. Yeah. And that was the moment at 30, 39, I was diagnosed with brain cancer. I saw the picture you posted at one point on LinkedIn with the post-op. Post and um, wow. Um, do you think you are born with grit and resiliency? Or do you think it's something you've trained yourself over the years? I think strength is something that's located deep down in our bellies and at the deepest and darkest of times, we can find it, we can grab it, we can own it. I think we all have it inside of us. We have this misnomer that strength is how big your arms are and how much we bench press and, mm -hmm. and, and all these other physical attributes when we realize that it's there. The key is if we find it, we have to make it ours. We can't give it back. When they brought me back into the hospital bed after I went through these MRIs, I have no problem sharing this. I just start to cry. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I start to think about my life. Right, and I got three kids. I got a. I got a father. You. The, the reality is, yeah. someone hears you have brain cancer. You're gonna. Die, you're gonna die. Right. So now you got a dad dying, a father-in-law dying. You got three kids right here. We went there, and and I started to cry. And I thought there's something I must have done that caused this. I'm thinking I'm a good dad. I'm a good this. And when I saw that strength pop up, 
I grabbed it and I owned it and I just started cursing my brains out. And to this day, the nurses tell the story. They came running and they go, are you guys? I said, I'm fine. That was my pity party. Yeah. If I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. And I didn't know I had that in me. And it gave me this vision yeah. that we all have it in us. And I started to see the strongest people I've ever met are people that physically look the hmm. weakest. And you start to have this new set of lenses you get gifted with. As you've been through it, you yeah. see life differently. All of a sudden, you understand what's yeah. raw, what's real, what actually matters. And I get asked all the time, how scared were you? This is going to sound odd. I was never scared again at that point. Yeah. Not for one second. I wasn't scared about it. Sir. I had yep. to get a craniotomy. Yeah. I had to cut my head off. They'd take the tumor out. Chemo. Right? I don't know where I found it, but I knew there was no way I was going to give back. That's the trade-off whether it be disease, whether it be a devastation event, something that impacts us in a way that we have no choice on, there is a give and take in there. And if we allow ourselves to give back what we are given, shame on us. We've yeah. seen the person who get, loses a ton of weight, yep. they get comfortable, yep. they give it all, but they, they get it all back. The per I know people who have been through cancer, not as severe as mine, they get through it, yeah. they go right back to their old ways. I don't look at that with disdain. Yeah. I think it's sad. I think it's sad that that trade-off you earned it. You own it. And if you give it back, you never really learn from the lesson you've been through. And you're not – You're the hardest part is you're not defining yourself the proper I find way. It, we define ourselves by what happens during the I find it times. interesting you used the word strength a little while ago because I equate that. I've, it's a saying I've been kind of taking um, around with me is you find your why, you'll find your way. And your your why was the moment you found the strength. And for some people, it's a religious thing. Some people, it's um, the death of a mm -hmm. parent or something. I mean, the, the why that each one of us has. My why happened October 4, 2016. Very clear, very concise, very an opportunity death provided me. I mean, if you think about it in context of philosophy, the greatest teacher we have is death. It, it clarifies everything. It teaches your respect and awe and honor and gratitude and impermanence. All these great concepts that we lose focus of while we're alive because we're chasing the dream. We're chasing the summit. And then you get there and you realize it's an illusion. All you really have at the moment is all you, all, all you have right now is you and me talking. That's all I have in my life right now. Um, everything else is memories and, and thoughts and ideas and, and the future is not even here. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you and I are having this conversation is the most important thing in my life right now. And when I'm Well, you're 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 positioning a lesson that we've been gifted with. And I say gifted. Yeah. Some people have a hard time digesting right. that. It's not about yesterday, it's not about tomorrow. It's about living in the moment and appreciating the now. There will be only one now. That's living in the moment yep. tattoo. Uh, uh, that's the water, and this uh, ten four sixteen is the date of my son's death in Roman numerals, which is the name of my son Roman. The water represents living in the moment. Uh, the color represents my love for scuba diving. My my youngest son and I are certified scuba divers. We go on three trips a year somewhere in the world. So that's the awesome. ocean gets deeper as you get down, and then the middle is a golf ball. And my son, my middle son, is a college golfer in South Dakota, and he's raised over fifty thousand dollars for um, uh, alcohol and substance abuse for adolescents through. Uh, when his brother died, which was his sophomore year, the day of districts, his sophomore year of high school. But I want to throw this out at you too, because you said something else, yeah. Matt. And I can tell, obviously, an hour is not going to cut it today. We should go for five, <laughs> me and you. But the day the day Seth died, go back to this, the day that you talked about, the pivotal moment, the choice. And I, you know, I write about this recently. Is that you know, do, do you really have a choice when you're confronted with two roads? 
and one road is better, one is bitter. It, the, the, the bitter road is really an abyss. It's a pit. It's not a road. I mean, it, it, it's a, it goes right into something that will kill you. And so at the end of the day, when you think about choices between good and bad, you know, smoking pot or, you know, not smoking pot, whatever it is, you really, to me, I, I didn't really have an option not to take the better road. And here's, I'll give you a quick story, then I'll get back to what you were saying. The day Seth died, um, I, I was getting ready to go to districts. My son was a sophomore and I was dropping him off at the golf course and I got the call that our son was found dead. And I looked at my son and I didn't even tell him. I couldn't tell him. Uh, I didn't want to steal from his moment, take away from his team. The team was out there all excited about districts. And I just got in my car and I thought immediately, how am I telling my wife that my, our son is dead? And Ian had to think at 15 years old, you know, where's dad? Where's mom? You know, the first tee, he walks up in my book, looking around going, where are my superheroes? You know, these, these are the people who have never missed anything in my life. And he had to have known something bad happened. Well, as it turned out, he double bogeyed his last hole and the team missed state by one shot. So he gets home in tears that, hey, dad, you know, I, I let the team down. And I said, no, Seth, I got, or, um, Ian, I got bigger things to tell you about devastation. You know, your brother's dead. And the first thing he said, um, he, was he was 15 at the time. He goes, how'd he die, dad? Drugs? And I said, yeah. And then, Matt, this is the key. Something happened. And it wasn't pre-planned. I had a conversation with my dad. He's a retired doctor. And he told me to tell him the truth and then shut my mouth. Because I like to always talk through things. And so I said, uh, your brother's dead. How'd he die? Drugs. And then immediately, Matt, I said, I said, boys, we have two roads to go down. We have one road of anger, despair, and hatred. We'll become alcoholics and addicts ourselves. We have a road of inspiration and motivation. And this will be the single greatest moment in our life to make ourselves better and those around us. And here's the key. I'm on the second road. I ask you to join me. I didn't tell him how to grieve. I thought it was really important for me when the one thing I wanted to take out of this one moment I had to not screw this up. I'm never going to get an opportunity like this to be the best dad I can be. I didn't tell them how to grieve. I showed them. And then I quit drinking, wrote the book, started the nonprofit, doing the podcast, now meeting people like you. And my boys now are eyes wide open seeing how you can survive the worst possible thing, losing a child in, in context. And I'm not saying anything else is less grieving. It is. It's, it's horrendous. Um, and that's one thing I've learned in this is all of our stories are unique to us and they're, they're the most important thing. Um, yet... For my boys, losing a brother or sister is the number one uh, bereavement issue to deal with uh, for an adolescent is losing a sibling, not a parent, not, not, not a dog or a cat or grandma, grandpa. It's losing a brother and sister. So at 13 and 15, Matt, I had, this, I had this chance that I could, like you said, find the strength, find my why. And I did. And, but I did go downhill for eight months became a, a horrible alcoholic, uh, worse than I was before my son died. Uh, didn't work. I stopped working. I, I haven't seen a client in two years. I haven't been in the office in about a year, but our AUM went up by 21% last year. And I talk about delegating and, and how that's saved my life as well. Um, and where I jumped off on this, I don't know, you said a couple things. I thought, well, with ADD, I have to, yeah. I have to say them because what you're, what you're saying is so right. Your story is, I've watched your podcast. This I mean, I've, you don't know this. I've probably seen eight or nine of your podcasts and you're consistent. You're consistent in that how you've dealt with this has not wavered. You found strength. And I don't, I don't know if it's your kids or your wife or your father-in-law, something was your why. And I applaud you, man. I think people watching this can say, well, there's two, two gentlemen here. 
they each have been dealt, you know, cards that they could complain about. You know, I could be getting drunk. You could be getting drunk. Um, you know, we could be having unhealthy relationships, but you chose to wrote a book. You chose to be a keynote speaker, man. You, you're speaking all over the country, maybe the world. I don't know about that, but you're, you're active, you're engaged. And I love you for that, brother. I really do. And I, 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 um, all you guys are mentors to me and people look at me like I'm doing these heroic things. You know, I, I'm just a dad in Iowa, man. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a motivational uh, life coach or anything like that. I'm just a dad. I'm, I will do this till the last breath in on my last moment here on this planet. I'm going to talk about mental health, addiction, and substance abuse. Primarily, my focus is going to be for adolescents, uh, that 12 to 18 year old um, age. But I'm also gravitating towards people that are already there. Um, I'm meeting a lot of people that are in the intervention business, the rehab business, the you know, and that's fine. There's already a lot of players in that space. I want to talk to the kids, man. I think that's how you fix the next 20 years. You know, when my son died, Matt, there was 55,000 Americans died from opioid overdoses. Last year, there was almost 90. Now, you tell me how in the hell do we go from 55 to 90 and opioid now is a household name. We know more about fentanyl. Everyone knows what fentanyl is. We know more about this stuff. Why aren't we getting better? So it's, a, it's a great question. It's hard for me to be able to even digest or understand something happened to a child. Because that's different. And I went through something that I'll share with you as well, too, where it wasn't as severe as what you went through. But after I went through everything, writing became my catharsis. Yeah, uh, yeah. We we all talk about I would send these emails out to friends and family with my perspective, my understanding of life, my my new vision of appreciation, understanding how fragile things can be. Let me make this point clear. I did it for myself. Amen. Every time I had to get a cancer test, every time the doctor would say, we have to, listen, you have a grade three astrocytoma. It's probably going to grow back. You're going to get tests every three months, all this stuff. And every time something would trigger something in me, I would write. I never sat down with a pen. I never sat down with a keyboard. I'd have to go, hey, Matt, we need to do another test on that. i start writing. Hmm. Now I'd send these emails out. Four years into it. I had 20,000 people following my emails. I wasn't on social media. And I would get these calls every, hey, Matt, could you put this person on, that person on? I never thought about it. I never read hmm. one email that I sent out. So what's interesting So you, invent, is, you invented, you're the father of the blog, apparently. I don't know about that because it wasn't even on a blog. I was doing it But that's for what me. blogs turned out to be. Catharsis. That's what blogs turned out to be, is people talking about things. Maybe, yeah. 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 I, but 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 the interesting part about this is that when I would send them out, it was cathartic. And what I realized was that there's a lot of anxiety, fear, stuff I would never expose because I didn't really feel that way. Mm -hmm. But I was pushing it down deep in my belly. If you don't find an outlet for that emotion, you're going to combust, whether it's a podcast, yeah. charity. You have to find something. So my thing became writing. So what I decided to do four years into it was write a book. I had no ghostwriter. There was no publisher. Awesome. There was no business plan. Awesome. And as I finished my book, I had to redo the end of it. And I'll share why with you. Mm. On my four-year anniversary of being diagnosed, that was a big deal. Go through brain cancer. You're four years in. Now they're starting to move my tests back every four months. We decided we're going to have a celebration with our family. 
And that Friday, I was playing golf with my dad. My dad lives about an hour and a half from me. But you start to have this change in perspective of spending more time with family, understanding how things can change very quickly and they're out of our control, a lot of those changes. So we play golf and we come home on a Friday. It's maybe 4.30, 4.40. And my oldest son, Luke, is laying on the couch, writhing in pain. This is 2013. He's seven, eight years old. Oh, wow. And excuse me, excuse me, 2017, excuse me. He is, he's nine years old. And I walk over and go, what's going on? And my wife's like, Luke was riding his bike down the street. And we live in Washington Crossing. We're Washington Cross to Delaware, a lot of historical stuff. So there's not a lot of sidewalks and everything. And he's riding his bike and a car came down. So we turned to the side of the road. And when he turned, the handlebar swiveled oh, and he flipped over. Sure. And they hit him in the stomach. He said his stomach's killing him. So I look at his stomach. There's no bruise. There's no cut. You know, I have to have that talk, son. You know, we all fall off our bikes at some point. You know, sometimes <laughs> it's from alcohol or something. I don't know. Yeah. But he's fine. There's nothing there. The next day I take him. My other son, Jake, my godson, Gavin, and Luke's best friend, Billy, I take him to the Philadelphia Union soccer game. Go mm. watch it in a town called Cam. It's a, in Chester, New uh, Pennsylvania. Not a good area. So when the game ends, I'm like, let's go, let's go. And he's like crawling. I'm like, Luke, come on, man. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Sunday morning, we're going to celebrate four years of being cancer-free. And at 4.30 in the morning, he is writhing in pain. Yeah. Sums like, up. What the fuck, man? Yep, Something's going up. on. So I take him over at five in the morning to Capitol Health. It's a suburban hospital. There is nobody in a suburban hospital at five o'clock on a Sunday morning. This is we're not in Philly. We're not in New York City. So I bring him over there. No line. No nothing. They bring us to the room where I was diagnosed with brain cancer. Oh wow! Where I got told I'd have to go on chemo and radiation. The same room. Where I got told I was cancer free recently. Holy cow. And they'll see me in four months. So we bring him in. They go, we got to give him a CAT scan. I'm like, Loki, CAT scan, no big deal, buddy. I'm going to stand next to you right here. We're going to be cool. It's like an x ray. It's nothing. Sure. We're the only people in there. So they give him a CAT scan. About 20 minutes later, a doctor comes in. She goes, Can I talk to you in the other room, Mr. Newman? I go, Why? There's nobody here. She goes, Can I talk to you in the other room? I go, Okay. So I walk in the other room. She goes, your son's liver is completely lacerated. He needs to be thrown on a medevac right this second. He's going to be sent out to CHOP Children's Hospital, Philadelphia. Holy shit. I, 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 go, I go, what? She goes, his liver is lacerated. I go, CHOP's 30 minutes away. We could drive. She goes, he needs to be put on a helicopter right this second. You know, my first thought was, Give freaking cancer back. Give it to me. You're doing this to my kid? Yeah, this is what you're doing? So wow. I call my wife up. She drives up. Mm -hmm. We only live five minutes away. I watch her and my son jump on a helicopter and boom, they're off. I'm driving down and I fear, anger, hatred inside of me. It's not about me any longer. It's about my son. So we get down to CHOP. We walk into a room and there's 20 doctors poking him. And me and my wife are doing everything we can to hold every tear back possible, trying to show strength, fortitude. And the doctor comes up to us and goes, I got good and bad news for you. Here's the good news. The liver is a regenerating organ. It, it's it's going to grow back. Yeah. Bad news. If there's a blood infection, we have a problem. I go, so when we take him home, what do we do? He's like, take him home. I'm not going anywhere. We're going to intensive care for at least six, seven days. 
I don't know if everybody on this has heard of CHOP. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is probably the top-ranked children's hospital in the world. We are gifted to have it in Philadelphia. My best friend is the head of pediatric anesthesiology at Columbia Presbyterian. He worked there for years. My best friend, we lived in the same building, would never let me in the hospital. I would pick him up outside. We go up there. The room next to us, there's a two-day-old being held by his dad in a hazmat suit. Two doors down from us, we hear the siren go off and they're not there any longer. 70% of the children that go in there are staying there or it's not going to leave good. We know if Luke's going to be there for six days, seven days, and there's no blood infection, we have a chance to leave. But the people who work there, the nurses, the doctors, they are not nearly given the, the love and respect that they should get for being able to check their emotion at the door, yeah, deal no with families, with babies, with newborns. And yeah. you have these open windows when you're walking by. You know, you see a car accident on the road, you stare at it. We'd be walking by. This would be me and my wife, head down, head down, head down. Don't look. Right, right. We were right. moved by this whole thing. We didn't have a change of clothes. We had nothing. We're just going to stay there and do whatever we have to do for our son. And my wife shows me a picture of the helicopter pilot named Michael Murphy. She goes, it was a 10-minute helicopter ride. I want to send him something. And that's my wife. He was so nice. We were so scared. He, he just did something amazing for us. So I took a picture of the helicopter so we could find out where to send it to him. Six days later, they gave us the ability to leave. They said, my son can't fight. He can't play sports. He's a great athlete. Uh, but 12 weeks later, if there's no infection, he's going to be fine. We said a prayer for all the people that were still in there, to all the families that were going through what they were. We thanked every doctor, every nurse possible for all that they're doing just for people who truly need it. And we left. Next day, I put a suit and tie on, going back to work. It's been a week. And my wife calls me that morning. She goes, I can't stop crying. Are you watching TV? My wife doesn't cry. My wife is a beautiful little blonde girl from mining country, Pennsylvania, as I mentioned. She's extremely tough. <laughs> She's a little intimidating sometimes. Yeah. I go, crying? What are you talking about? She goes, are you watching TV? I go, no, I'm walking into a meeting. What's going on? She goes, the helicopter that flew us down just went down in Newcastle, Delaware. And the pilot, Michael Murphy, 37 years old, just died. I go, what? He had a pregnant wife and two-year-old at home. It's the first time I looked up. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you joking? I mean, cancer-free, lacerated liver, helicopter down, chopped for six days, helicopter crashes, guy dies, he's got a pregnant wife. And all I'm thinking is, please, let this guy have done some type of planning, something to alleviate some of this regret and resentment that's going to be put on his family. And three days later, a GoFundMe page came out. We don't teach people what to do. When it happens to our children, and you know way better than I do, yeah. it affects us in a different way. We'd give up anything to make that go away. We'd give up our lives, whatever it's going to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I had to redo the whole end of the book to put that in there because no human being would believe that we went in that direction there. And I wanted it to be a tribute to the person that flew him down as well too because if they didn't get them there the way he needed to, who knows if we're even having this conversation today. So you answered my question. Uh, how'd you come up with the name, the title of your book? A couple of ways. Starting at the finish line. I mean, that, that seems to me one story that would attribute for that title. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how we came up with it, if you want to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, no ghostwriter, no business plan, no publisher. Right. It was yeah. my way of alleviating 
everything building up inside of me to avoid combustion. And I called it starting at the finish line. It wasn't the first title I chose because the cover of me uh, is a picture of me. And it's, you see my back and it's got one of the poems yep. that we put on. We used to run the yep. Broad Street Run in Philly for fun. After I was diagnosed, we run it to beat brain cancer. And we've raised about $120,000 in charity for multiple charities um, to beat brain cancer and support the, the families that are going through this that need help. It's not just about beating it. It's about supporting. And my wife makes these shirts every year and we get people to run with us and we raise money. And the, the Broad Street Run's a, a big thing to us. So the Broad Street Run, coupled with the basics of financial planning, starting at the finish line was just there. Start at the finish line of your fi- and there was no plan. And I'll tell you what happened. On March 23rd, 2018, the book came out on Amazon. And I called my mom up in Parsippany, New Jersey. I go, hey, Ma, the book's coming out tonight. I'm going to tell you exactly what she said. I did this in a TED Talk. She goes, you know no one's ever going to read it, right? I don't care about me. Are you kidding me? She goes, but you're going to put three copies in your safe. So when your children are old enough, they'll be able to read the reality of what actually happened that most people wouldn't believe. I said, Mom, I'm good with that. And one week later, we were number one in Amazon in four categories and my jaw hit the ground because I can honestly tell you, I did not care if anyone read it. It was my way of staying on point and not allowing negativity to take over this gift that I was given. And I get this all the time. So you're glad this happened. No. What are you, out of your mind? I didn't know. It was terrible. I, it's something I'm going to deal with for the rest of my life. Right but I could allow that to dictate my life or I could take from that and I dictate my life. And that to me, there was no option on that. I'm just sitting here thinking of all the similar stories I can think of when I wrote my book, same thing. COVID was great for me because I couldn't leave the house. I sat down in my studio here, got my Iron Maiden poster in the background. I like that, by the way. I like that. Yeah, that represents my ADD, by the way. That's why I tell people that's what that's what Eddie my Maiden is, my ADD. But don't want to make this about me, but I do want to tell you how I started my book. Um, same thing. I sat down in my studio like you did. I had no publisher. I, I didn't want, I wanted everything to be 100% me. Even the audio book I did is my voice. That was important to me not to have somebody else come in. No one can fake the passion that, that I have. Um and so when I did my book, the title, the title of my book is This One's For You. And what it, it's a, uh, an inspirational journey through addiction, death, and meaning. And what it is, is it represents what my son Ian did. Um, when my son, um, when his brother died, uh, Ian started raising money. And um, every time he made a birdie, he'd point his putter to the sky and say, this one's for you. And the Des Moines Register... Uh, came out uh, uh, his junior year, and they did a, a story on on our, our on him primarily. And it wasn't just the sports page; it was the whole front page of the Des Moines Register. And then a year after that, CBS Sports came out, and there's a nine minute documentary on on the internet that Zach Johnson, the PGA Hall of Fame golfer, actually narrated. Um, uh, the, the agent was able to get a hold of Zach in New Jersey. Blake Burson's his name. He works for CBSSports.com, and he lives in New Jersey. But he uh, was able to get Zach. I think it was the the Barclays. I think one of the mm-hmm. FedEx tournaments that's in New Jersey. He was able to get Zach to 
watched the documentary and then Zach narrated it. So if you Google Ian Johnston oh, CBS Sports, you'll see it. But but the reason I bring this up, Matt, is your story. There's a lot of people out there, and a blog I wrote recently called "If Not Now, When," and you could have just said, "I'll go raise money later. I'll write a book later. I'll I'll." be a keynote speaker later. I'll, you know, there's a million things you could have done. I could have done the same thing. There's people watching this that have been diagnosed, you know, um, astrocytoma, right? Correct. I say correctly? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, And I I had to, I researched it. I understand a little bit better, but that's one thing about this journey is I'm learning words like scleroderma, words that I've never heard of before that now I can start understanding. but, you know, going back to, to what happened to you and, and again, what happened to me is there's people watching this that something happened to them. Maybe they were sexually molested as a child. Um, I met a gentleman that came out in his 50s about his sexual abuse by his cousin. Moving story. And now he runs one of the biggest rehab facilities in Baltimore. Or he's active in that area. And I'm like, you can do this. You know, you did it. I did it. You and I, are, we put our pants on the same way. I, I'm not a superhero you're you're not a superhero not by we have many battles ahead of us um i have some things i'll talk to you off off air that have happened recently that are um another opportunity for me to be a better man and that's how i look at all these things Mm -hmm. i had had an awesome interview with do you know who dr jason selk is i don't yeah he's a um similar to you he's a motivational speaker a a, um psychologist a doctor down in the st louis area but he's He's um, really big into um, uh, working through trauma, working through uh, issues that people have. And I had him on the podcast yesterday. I taped it. Oh, cool. And like you, you know, I've got all these things I'm going to be writing down after we get off that I can now, you know, kind of maybe repackage in in my stories to people and, and hopefully help people. But I'll guarantee you there's somebody watching this today, Matt, that's going to, after they're done, is going to sit down and start their book. I, and or or is going to make that phone call to that one relative for some reason there's something going on in the relationship and they're going to bury that hatchet and say you know what I love you let's get past this let's move on these things life is you know I'm 55 I don't have 50 years to live and if I do it's going to be the last ending won't be probably the way <laughs> I want it I got like 30 I got 30 good years dude I to me that's like that's like three weeks you know, so well, Jeff. Think about what you're saying there for a moment. There's there, there's there's lessons we learn in every situation. It's if we choose to acknowledge them and embrace them, that's on us. If we don't do it, but there's mm-hmm. two words I use a lot that I didn't use as much before. It's kindness and gratitude. I use those a lot. Oh, absolutely. Because we we don't realize is when we talk about assets, we correlate that to money. Our biggest asset is mm-hmm. our time. Because it's limited. And if we give it away, we don't get it back. So think about kindness and gratitude for a moment. How many people watching this just shot a random text message to someone today and said, hey, Jeff, just thinking of you. I hope you and the family are doing well. That might take you three seconds to do. That might do more for someone going through something than you could imagine. How many times have someone done something for us where you take a moment and just go, hey, Jeff, I just want to say thank you. I just got that uh, that note that you sent me or what. I want to let you know how much it means. Kindness and gratitude are something that are free. They're infectious. And our, for some reason, whole environment has avoided that. And what I started to notice 
after taking on this, I, I would give the, I, I started giving talks. I'll share, listen, when, after my book came out, I got a call from ESPN two weeks later. They want to have me on. I thought it was my brother crank calling me. I didn't even believe it for a second. I'm like, yeah, right. You want to talk to me. <laughs> they started to do TED Talks and I started to do all this. But here's what I learned. Many people don't want to share the issues they've taken on. The way they deal with it is by themselves. Mine was to be yeah. outward about it. Mine was to get it off my chest. I didn't pick that. That's just what made me feel me better. Too. But they me will too. talk about it with people regardless what the topic is if they feel they've been put on a similar path. And I would give a speech and I'm at a mm. conference. There's so thousands right. of people, whatever's going to be there. And I'll sign books afterwards for people. I have to have people there because it's the same every time. So Matt, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about suicide. And I realize it's not about cancer. It's about, we all have our battles. We all have our scars and we all have our demons. And when we could find out, you and I got to talk longer, man. We got to talk. <laughs> well, I'll finish the. I, I I'll just, give you the last. I, you point just, real quick. I just, I'm just sitting here going, man. I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta write down all because this is really good stuff that complements a lot of what I'm trying to talk but, about. But it's too. the truth. Nobody's got this rainbows and unicorns, Photoshop BS life of perfection. We've all got the stuff that we've taken yeah. on. The difference yeah. is, is that when someone has an understanding of that. It might give them that cathartic measure. So just by sharing kindness, just by sharing gratitude in a selfless manner, you might be doing more for other people than you realize. Let me put this in context because um, what you said is so, so, uh, so perfect. Um, my opening of my book, I, I had the epiphany moment that kind of changed everything for me. I went to speak with um, Mrs. Powers freshman class out of Prairie where my boys go and, and Ian was with me. So we were putting on a presentation to freshman class about alcohol, substance abuse. And I start with my story and stuff. I got done. It was like 45 minutes and I had seven sessions in a row that I had to do. Oh, that wow. day. So I was kind of, I was kind of worn out by the last one. Yeah. It was a lot of work that day, but I enjoyed it. And as I was wrapping up, I think the fourth or fifth session, um, I see a, a young man in the back, you know, people like you, kind of standing around talking, you know, the, the, the people want to know a little more. And then I see this one kid out of the corner of my eye that sheepishly is kind of waiting for everyone to leave. And I see him come up to me and he's got tears welled up in his eyes, Matt. And I'm like, wow, did I trigger him? I, you know, what, what ha I want to know what happened. And now all the other kids have kind of left and he came up to me and he goes, he hands me a piece of paper and it says, stay strong, Mr. Johnston. That's all it says. And he was 14 years old. And I asked him, I said, so you know, what did I say to trigger you? And he said, I'm an alcoholic, Jeff. I'm 14. I've been in rehab. And I'm like, 14, 14 years old. Seriously, 14. And at that moment, right there at that moment, I said, I need to do this. I, I, this is, you know, I have, a, I have a son that's gone. That's motivation. Trust me, I got plenty there. That's a big well I can tap from. Now I got this kid that I came there thinking this is going to help Jeff Johnston. You know, yeah. this is therapeutic for me, you know, kind of selfishly, kind of um, narcissistically, kind of I'm there to talk about my story. It's me, me, me. And then at the moment, I just get humbled. I just get apt by a 14-year-old kid. And it's the first beginning of my introduction in my book that sets the template for this humility journey I'm on. You know, I'm humbled by you. I'm humbled by, I'm you know... And we're yeah, going to meet, man, 100%. I promise you, because, because I haven't announced this yet. And by the time this posts, it'll probably be out there. 
but I have I have something that I'm going to be I'm going to be doing. It. I'm going to uh, I'm going to ask yeah, for your support. Pleasure. And um, you know, if 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 you and I can do the, do what we can here, imagine what we could do on on a, on, a, on a level where we have you know uh, an opportunity to, to I love it. people. I'm um, I'm looking anyway, forward to hearing um, about it. Something that I've liked, and I, I I'm sure you probably are a compulsive reader like I am. You say writing is it helps you, but reading helps me as well. Um, is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and Viktor Frankl's one of the it's one of the I think it's twenty or thirty million book wow. copies have been sold or something. It's one of the most popular books of all time. But he was a prisoner in Auschwitz, and he writes about what kept him alive, and he was you know daily seeing his people next to him get get murdered, and then. The, you know, just all the stuff that went on every day. And now he kind of decided, you know what? I can't, I can't control whether I get killed today. I can't control whether I get fed today. I can't control, you know, whether I sleep out in the, in 30 below weather today, but I certainly control my attitude. That's the one That's thing that they can't take. They can't that. take from me. And so he has, he, he had something in his book that said, suffering is my opportunity. And I was at a pool in, in, in um, Texas, my son had a golf tournament. I'm reading this and I just shot up. Thank you. You have these aha moments. Suffering is my opportunity. So what I did is I, I read, I re um, reinvented it into my own uh, phrase and my phrase that I take with me now and, and you, you embody it is pain is unavoidable, but suffering is a choice. That's a great line. And I like that. it is, I mean, your, your, your lesion, your, your, um, uh, astrocytoma, your, uh, your liver issue with your with your son. These are all things that happened that you had no, really no control over. That's correct. These are just these are unavoidable life uh, happenings that um, you had no. You had, but but you certainly had control over how long you were going to let these events dictate the quality of your life. Correct. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I have to think that's a guiding force for you as you move on through your life as well. Yeah, and I think that's it, it's a great summation of everything too. Is that there's a lot we don't control. Take ownership of what you do, because mm -hmm. that's that that that's what's going to lead to the memories that we leave with other people of how we handled adversity and how we maintain dignity during difficult times. Do you? Do you? Um, I'm, this is a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it. <laughs> The perception is for people that know you is that you're, you know, bulletproof and Teflon, blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I'm assuming you have very difficult days, difficult moments, difficult times. Um, have you found to compartmentalize that, to keep the lifespan of these things very short? That, that's what I found has helped me. But do you, do you see that it's okay to have negative emotions and negative feelings and depressive yeah, moments? So you just want to keep them short. I just, well, for me, it's always triggering the memories of where you've been. So for example, my radiation mask right in my office, it stares down at me all the time. I can get pissed, wow. angry, this happens. Look at that, I go, calm down. My entire sleeve of, of art, as you were showing yours, this entire sleeve is my story. And I, I told the doctors one time, I told the surgeon, I said, I wish you didn't do such a good enough job. Good job. And he's like, what the hell did you just say to me? I go, Unless I shave my head, you can't see this massive scar that goes all the way around there. Can't really see it. I go, I wish I could. He goes, what do you mean? I go, imagine I'm pissed off. I'm in a bad mood. Someone annoyed me. Wow. And I look in my rear view mirror and I see the scar. I'd go, calm down. The mistake people make is they don't institute reminders. They just move forward and leave something behind them.
that's the mistake. I think we're related. I think you and I are related. <laughs> I, I quit drinking December 24, 2017. I have a dog named Camus. I have a cat named Opus. <laughs> Two good wines right there. I have, I have a bottle of Camus next to my bed, sitting next to my bed. To remind me that I'm not afraid of it. I don't even call myself sober because sober a, implies a that's struggle. That's your reminder. Sobriety right implies a struggle. You know, I, I don't use the word alcoholic or even sober because it implies things. I go to restaurants and I'll order a glass of wine when I'm by myself and look at it. And the waitress or waiter will come up and say, who are you waiting for? I, Nobody. This is to remind me. I see my son's face on that mm-hmm. bottle or that glass. And it's to remind me. Now, AA meetings don't recommend this. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> and, different. And I'm sure... Right. And you as well, your mask and things you do to remind yourself. And I think the, the common thread here, Matt, that I think um, that I'm very uh, grateful to have this opportunity oh, to talk me with too. you is that there is no template. There is there no, is no correct exactly way right. to, there's no way to deal with um, cancer. There's no way to deal with death of a child. There's no way to deal with, there's, there's only your way. And you have to find a way to make it the right way. That's exactly. And it has to be yours. It has to be, it has to work for you and it might not work for someone else, but you have to find your angle. You have to find something that alleviates. And that's where I think the hardest part comes is people will try to do what that person did. You got to find your thing. You really do. There is no game plan or roadmap of how to deal with stress and anxiety and fear. I have one last question and uh, yeah. then we'll wrap it up. And I want, I want to get a little update on kind of what's next for you and stuff. But um, yeah. do you ever fear beca- Do you ever fear getting too vulnerable? No. Okay. I'm comfortable in who I am. I know that sounds and, and- odd. I would have, by the way, maybe before this, but I've learned that I am as authentic as I am. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't do anything. And listen, we all have our moments of stuff here and there where we make yeah. stupid mistakes. My wife could probably count off tons of these stupid mistakes that I make. But um, as far as this type of stuff, no, I don't feel that way at all. I mean, if someone doesn't agree or like what I say, everybody's entitled to their own opinions. That's fine with me. But this is coming from the heart. There's no canned or, you know, thought process into, hey, let me sit down and come up with a way to market this. Everything I write in my my posts, I speak about in my, my speeches, that is absolutely me. Without any question, and and I I struggled with this Matt early on. I say a couple years into I'm in you know this would be year this October will be five years that Seth died. He would have been 28, and um, I struggled with this early on. That I even wrote a blog called "My Addiction to Vulnerability," and how I was trying to navigate through. I was concerned that this was all consuming, where I was just building this prison around me. As much as I thought I was helping myself and helping others. I was just painting myself in this corner and reliving and, and just, and so now I'm past that. I've, I've shattered mm-hmm. that, that wall and I'm kind of like you, but you know, one thing that I did realize that in this journey, I'm meeting people like Matt Newman. I'm meeting people like Steve Grant. Mm-hmm. Steve Grant is, a, do you know Steve? I've, I've heard um, the name before. Yeah. He lost his only two boys to heroin overdoses, Chris and Kelly. Um, 20 years ago, which was before it was even, and he had no place to go. There was no, LinkedIn. There was no right. uh, anything out there. He was he was out there in reinventing himself. He's become a guide to me, a, a, a great friend. That's all. You know, and I tell myself, I tell myself constantly. You know, I got two of my three boys still here. I'm pretty goddamn lucky. Um, Steve lost his only two boys, and he raised a million dollars 
through the help of the, he's in the um, uh, Dabu Sweeney with the Clemson football program and stuff. He's really big. Steve's in South Carolina. He's raised a million dollars for the Chris and Kelly Hope Foundation. Awesome. And um, he's become a good friend of mine, uh, someone that I've called at a few times to get talked off the ledge. Well, you, there, you, um, have, you have a connection that's real, that's pure. And that's something mm-hmm. that you can't, there's no fictitious component to it. You can see through that a mile away. And, and one of the things I talk a lot about is how important support is. And support may not come from the people you think it will. But when you find that right. support, there's no benefit to someone doing it other than that kindness and gratitude that I mentioned before. And that's something you never give up because that's a selfless act to try and be there for people because you're just showing caring and love and appreciation. And it's a hard thing for some people to digest that the people they count on it from, they may not get it from, but it's out there. You just might have to find it. I guarantee you, Matt, you don't waste time. Not too often. You value your time. I do because I know how you know. we know how short it is, and we know how things right. can change, and we we get delivered this new version of ourselves that we can take control of it. It's not all perfection all the time. It, it never is, but sometimes it's okay to hold yourself in your tracks and go, "Hang on." But you're always you're always free to tell yourself and you're always free to tell yourself a new story about your past. You're not obligated to yeah. You're not obligated to even believe anything that happened to you. How you behave is so much more important than how you what you believe. Um, I totally and his reflection is great. Yeah, and it's important to reflect. Yeah, but to constantly be in the past is the wrong thing. I wrote about that today. To constantly be focused on the past. No. Well, we, we're at a minute. You're giving, you're we're giving minute, up. We're at a minute five. I'm going to have to get you. I, tell you what, I'm going to. Okay. I want to give you a, an, a, an invite to uh, my yeah. life. My live streams. I do these every two weeks. I bring on two guests. I'd love that. Yeah, I've done four now, and I have one. Um, my next live streams will be tomorrow night, which this will be posting. That'll be way over, but it's with Patrick Moore and Amy Alseth, and we're going to be talking about um, the uh, mental health, addiction, substance abuse, interventions, those type of thing. Um, and they're, normally, oh, awesome. they're about an hour and a half and, but I want to invite you. I want to find a nice guest to I'd pair love to you do with. It. Yeah. I would be honored to have you on. I, I, I want to Let's find do a, it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, uh, what's next for you? What's, what's next for you? So it, it's a great question. I, I focus, you know, always on family and, and yeah, I love my business and I love the things that we do. It's a, it, it's a great question. Because I think there's a lot up in the air. I, the, the speaking, I love doing. It's cathartic. It's almost taken the place of writing for me of some aspect, of getting stuff out of my system, um, continuing to speak, continuing to share, continuing to connect with people like you and, and, and meet others and you know have this like spider web continue to grow mm-hmm. of support and love and perspective is something that I welcome. So I'm not sure where a lot of things are going to go, but I know this, I'm going to appreciate, enjoy the ride more than I did in the past. Well, you embody why I do what I do. You, I don't have to tell you. I'm, to, so, I don't have I'm to, so thankful for you having me, first off. Well, I don't have to tell you to keep living undeterred because <laughs> I think that's just, that's in your DNA, man. Um, well, I'm, I'm honored to call you a friend now. Um, absolutely. I feel I feel exactly the same. Your story is amazing. And I can't wait to read your book. And I guarantee that you're going to be hearing from me the second I do. Yeah. And um, and I'm sure you and I together will be able to, um, you know, two heads are better than one. So so with that, I'm going to do this. Uh, how can people reach out to you? What's the best way to reach out to yeah. you? And then um, uh, maybe, um, 
yeah. So like all your social media content, is there one place that people can go to? Yeah, I'll make your life. So my website, it's Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, S, Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N.com. That's Matthew S. Newman.com. The only person that calls me Matthew to this day is still my mother. But it's Matthew S. Newman.com. On there, you have all TED Talks, ESPN, all speeches, um, podcasts, everything that we do. But the reason I share that as well, too, is you can reach us directly on there or we have all of our social media from Instagram to LinkedIn to Twitter on there. And you could, it, rather than me giving all those handles, which I didn't even know yeah. what a handle was three years right. ago, <laughs> you can go right on there and reach out to us and follow us and see the different things that we're doing to raise money for charity, to inspire, to share, to let people know that they're not alone out there. We all have our frailties that we deal with. Well, thanks for letting me part of your journey, man. I, I, I uh, This is awesome. I couldn't wait for this. I'm going to jump on with reckless abandon. So this will be fun. Um, Hey, uh, thanks a lot again. I appreciate uh, all you've done. Oh, and, thank you. It's um, absolutely my pleasure. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to continue this. So with that, um, thanks to Matt Newman for being our guest today on the Living Undeterred podcast. And we will see you shortly. And as always, please keep living undeterred. Thank you. Thank you.